ACU were able to pass the American Rescue Plan. We're able to include in it a provision named for your brother, Butch Lewis, that guarantees the pensions you work for will be there for decades to come. And now, we're working with you on the Blue Collar Blueprint to Rebuild America, to create millions of good-paying union jobs that can't be outsourced. China has become a favorite target of right on issues ranging from trade policy to human rights to COVID-19, with some dangerous implications in terms of anti-Asian violence and xenophobia across the U.S. But what does this mean for workers and for the labor movement both here and in China? People don't realize, you know, when we go to buy lumber to build sets at the lumber store or we go to the fabric place and we buy you know, stuff for costumes or we rent props or antiques, you know, or furniture. So, I mean, I think there's, there's a lot of things that people don't realize that if you support those businesses, you're actually supporting our business as well. She said it was like magic. Everything changed. All of these people who have been telling me no, all of a sudden was like, oh, okay, this is what we need to do. And that's the benefit of someone who knows where the bones bury, right? They know where the minefields are, and they know the language, and they're experts in their craft. We were shocked when we turned up one day to find that the gate was locked, padlocked. The employer told me, there's not a woman's washroom on site or in the building. So yeah, that's not a problem. Nobody ever sees, you know, the 10,000 hours, the 20,000 hours, the multiple shows in a night while having a day job, driving, being exhausted. You know what's wrong with America. It's socialism. Caught what? We blow a light. What I wanted to do was use the medium of podcasting to provide, you know, a chance for people like my my dad, who was the very first guest I ever had on the show, to open up and talk about what they were going through. Welcome to the Labor Radio Podcast Weekly. It's our roundup of highlights from some of the more than 100 shows that make up the Labor Radio Podcast Network. You can check them out at laborradionetwork.org. This week, President Joe Biden talks about building for the future on the Teamsters podcast. Then, a conversation about what rising U.S.-China tensions mean for workers and the labor movement in both countries from the Belabored podcast. On The Voice of Oregon's Workers, a look at Oregon's growing union movement. And it may be summer break, but teachers are already preparing for the next school year. CTU Speaks talks with longtime educator and activist Tara Stamps, the union's administrative director of new teacher development. Next, we go to Australia's Solidarity Breakfast podcast for an interesting report on the lockout at the Collingwood Community Gardens. And on Trailblazers, Inc., Kayla Vandermoller shares her experiences as a boilermaker. Writer, actor, producer, and stand-up comic Eliza Schlesinger talks about the hard work of comedy with Third and Fairfax, the podcast from the Writers Guild of America West, and from the San Francisco Mime Troupe's brand new radio drama, we get a taste of episode one of Tales of the Resistance. This week's Labor Radio Podcast Network profile is a visit with Maximilian Alvarez, host of the Working People Podcast. I'm Chris Garlock for the Labor Radio Podcast Weekly. Remember, 
You can find all of today's shows along with more than 100 more just like them at laborradionetwork.org. And if you enjoy the Labor Radio Podcast Network weekly, please be sure to like us and share. Solidarity works. Here's the show. edition of the Teamsters podcast. I'm Kara Dennis of the Teamsters Communications Department. In this episode, we'll hear about the union's 30th international convention, which just wrapped up and was held virtually for the first time due to the coronavirus pandemic. The Teamsters, with more than 1 million essential workers, were a leader during the COVID-19 crisis in making sure Americans got the goods that they required. And this convention was a celebration of its political and organizing power that has caused the union to grow over the past five years. The Teamsters are all about getting things done, and that's become easier now that the union has a team in the White House that wants to join with us and improve the lives of hardworking Americans. President Joe Biden, U.S. Labor Secretary Marty Walsh, and U.S. Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg are friends of this union and took time out to congratulate members for their work. Since the beginning, you all have been with me, and I'm with you. I'm working with Secretary of Labor Marty Walsh and the entire administration to make sure we are the most pro-labor presidency in American history. Thanks to you, we're able to pass the American Rescue Plan. We're able to include in it a provision named for your brother, Butch Lewis, that guarantees the pensions you work for will be there for decades to come. And now we're working with you on the blue-collar blueprint to rebuild America, to create millions of good-paying union jobs that can't be outsourced, to modernize our transportation structure, and to pass the PRO Act, and to rebuild the backbone of this country, working-class and middle-class people to build from the bottom up and the middle out. We have some work ahead of us. But I know that you got a tough job ahead of you. It's always a good idea to call the Teamsters. Thank you for all and everything you do. And Jim, thank you for your leadership and friendship. Hi, this is Labor Secretary Marty Walsh. I'm a proud product of the labor movement. And I've always fought for workers' rights as a member and president of Labor's Local 223 in Boston, as head of the Greater Boston Building Trades, as a state legislator and mayor of Boston, and now as Secretary of Labor. Workers are a priority in the Biden-Harris administration. Their health and safety, their wages and benefits, their opportunity for job training, their equity and protection from discrimination, and the right to organize and engage in collective bargaining. I fully intend to advance these priorities and do what I have always done, fight for working people. I want to congratulate President Hoffa on your final convention and thank you for over two decades of leadership. 
Thank you for listening to this episode of the Teamsters podcast. Join us next time for another episode from America's Strongest Union. And please be sure to check out www.teamster.org. You're listening to Descent Magazine's Belabored Podcast, hosted by Sarah Jaffe and Michelle Chen. Hi, Michelle. Hey, Sarah. Welcome to Belabored Episode 225. In June, the Senate passed a key piece of bipartisan legislation known as the Anti-China Bill. It was touted as a measure to boost U.S. competitiveness and strengthen national security strategy with respect to its chief political rival. But why does it seem like the only time there is bipartisan unity in Washington is when the goal is to antagonize Beijing? Over the course of the Trump era, China has become a favorite target of the right on issues ranging from trade policy to human rights to COVID-19, with some dangerous implications in terms of anti-Asian violence and xenophobia across the U.S. But what does this mean for workers and for the labor movement both here and in China? In addition to being a massive authoritarian capitalist state, after all, China is also home to arguably the world's biggest working class. And for all the talk about American jobs being offshored to China, where do the plights of workers in both countries intersect? Is global labor solidarity even possible? To figure out how labor and the left should be thinking about China, I talked to Tobita Chow, director of Justice is Global. It seems like the only time you can ever get the two parties in Washington to agree on things is when they're rallying around the flag and behind some anti-China initiative or legislation. So that is quite curious how this has taken on the bipartisan kind of flavor in Washington. Outside of Washington, how do you see nationalist rhetoric playing out, I guess, in in everyday communities and in in workplaces or just among working class people that you talk to in your work? How do the, the, the sort of rhetorical barbs that are lobbed across the Pacific trickle down to how everyday people behave or how they perceive uh, themselves as, as members of, of global society. And I guess one of the things that comes to mind is the surge in anti-Asian violence that we see in the United States. Do you think that is a, a manifestation of some of this rhetoric? And so, you know, what are ways to counter that, not just at the highest levels of policymaking, but at the grassroots? Yeah, I think there is absolutely connection between this turn towards anti-China politics in the U.S. and the rise of anti-Asian racism. And I think we, like specifically the kinds of narratives about China that contribute to these incidents of racism are, I think, narratives about how China is a threat to America, a threat to the American way of life, a threat to the economic security of, of everyday Americans. There's these narratives about how China is a threat to you. Those are the narratives about China that I think we see feeding racism in concrete ways. And we did some research around this at Justice is Global earlier this year. And some of the ways we see this coming up is, of course, like narratives about how China is responsible for the pandemic. That's one of the biggest influences behind the rise in anti-Asian racism uh, since last year. But you can also see the impacts of other China threat narratives, for example, that China is spying on us or that there are Chinese agents like trying to 
influence and somehow corrupt U.S. society. We see those are narratives that we see being promoted, uh, again, by both parties around how China is an espionage or, or a so-called influence threat to the United States. And it shows up in racist incidents when people will accuse a Chinese or just an Asian person of being like a CCP agent or, or something like that, an agent of the Chinese Communist Party. Like that, has, that rhetoric has shown up in acts of racism since last year. These recent trends are rooted in longstanding, very deep-seated narrative structures that are going to take a long time to root out. And one set of narrative structures is just longstanding narratives about Chinese people and other Asian people, racist narratives that go back to the 19th century. Uh, so this is like deep-rooted stuff. Another really deep-rooted narrative structure is the kind of Orientalist binaries that you get between the U.S. and China or the U.S. and the East in general. It's just a cons consistent feature that we in the U.S. Or, or in the West tend to form our self-image in contrast to uh, this image of the other. And right now, China is the other that the U.S. imagines itself in opposition to. And this is like another consistent feature of U.S. society. It's very deep-rooted, and there's not going to be any quick solutions to, to rooting that out. Yeah, and I would say along with that trope comes increasing inability to distinguish between China as a nation state and Chinese people <laughs> and this growing kind of dehumanization of, of... That is a key narrative that we're up against. It's very standard and has been standard for generations to imagine all Chinese people as uh, this homogenous collective, as a monolith, which means that a lot of people will just find it natural to to extend any judgments they have about the say the Chinese government to ordinary Chinese people and see any ordinary just an average person from China is somehow automatically plugged into the, the Chinese Communist Party or as an appendage of the Chinese Communist Party. And yeah, that's a that's a very like longstanding racist set of narratives. And what we see is that anti-China hawks and right-wing demagogues find it very easy to work with that material. You've been listening to Descent Magazine's belabored podcast. For the entire archive of past episodes, visit descentmagazine.org. Join us online using hashtag belabored. Welcome back to the Voice of Oregon's Workers. I'm Russell Sanders, Communications Director for the Oregon AFL-CIO. This month's episode is all about the people who make the magic happen in entertainment industry unions. These are the folks behind stage, film, television, radio, sports, and more. I'm going to let these folks speak for themselves about everything that they've been dealing with in the past year with their industry. Go ahead and introduce yourself, starting with Bruce. Yeah, my name is Bruce Fife. I'm uh, president of the Local 99 of the American Federation of Musicians. Hello, my name is Rose Etta Venetusi. I am the current business representative of IATSE Local 28. Hi, I'm Amanda Sager. I am the president of IATSE Local 154 Ashland, Oregon, and I'm also the chair of the Southern Oregon Central Labor Chapter. I am C. David Cottrell. I am the current one of the current business agents of IATSE. International Alliance of Theatrical Stage Employees, 488. We represent workers in motion picture and commercial work. I'm Michelle Damas. I am the local president for SAG-AFTRA, which is the Screen Actors Guild and American Federation of Television and Radio Artists for Oregon and Southwest Washington. 
overseeing uh, actors, stunt performers, dancers, broadcasters, and other performers. How can we support the folks who are making movies and TV happen? We have an ecosystem here, and the ecosystem includes our live event workers. It also extends into these ancillary but connected industries like the restaurant industry, the hotel industry. We're contributing to the tax base of Oregon and of the city wherever we are in Oregon by the, the local taxes that are taken out of everybody's paycheck. These are taxpayer jobs. They're working in living wage jobs that help our economy grow um, and have a huge impact. It's a hidden impact that, that people don't realize, you know, when we go to buy lumber to build sets at the lumber store, or we go to the fabric place and we buy, you know, stuff for costumes, or we rent props or antiques, you know, or furniture. So, I mean, I think there's, there's a lot of things that people don't realize that if you support those businesses, you're actually supporting our business as well. But the main thing is supporting the taxes incentive program. Can I piggyback into that? So part of the Oregon Film Incentive Program, a lot of people don't understand. It's not free money. It is, in my uh, opinion, an extremely good investment on the amount that is put into the programs, into that other ancillary residual income that comes through all the businesses that C. David just spoke of. But what people don't understand is it's a really simple way for people to get involved. The film incentive comes from our taxes, from our state taxes. And by choosing to participate in this program, you get to buy a credit at a 10% discount. It goes into our economy in so many ways. The return on investment, we also are not, productions are not being handed money. Like, here you go, free money. They have to prove that they spent the money in the state. All of us are in this ecosystem. When TV and film is doing well, they also employ stagehands. They employ actors. They employ musicians. They, for example, when Grimm was filming here, they go into P5 and they rent a theater and they film in one of our theaters. And then our caterers come and help out. And there's food and craft services. And like Michelle said, all these different places they spend the money. It is indeed an ecosystem. And this tax credit is one of the best ways for everyone on this call to, to get some help. Now in the legislature, there's two bills going through. One is to extend the film incentive for six years, which is super, super important because any television series that want to come and film over a multi-year session, that's really important that they know that they're guaranteed that those incentives are gonna be available to them over a five-year run of show. So that's really important. So that we want that to go through. We're also asking for an increase right now up to 20 million. So uh, you can also reach out to the legislature and ask your representatives, hey, what do you know about the film incentive? Are you supporting it? I'll try to tie a little bow on what everybody just said. We talk about that ecosystem. What a lot of people don't understand is the last time I looked at these figures and saw these figures, a lot of people don't realize that the entertainment industry in the state of Oregon is bigger than tourism. It brings in more dollars to the state than tourism. It's a huge part of our economy in this state, and people oftentimes don't think of that. What can be done for the musicians? Basically, 
everything that Rosetta and, and Michelle and C. David talked about, they all relate to us. We're all the same. Thank you all so much for joining me today. And until next time, thank you so much. And to the guests, y'all were incredible. Thank you. That, that was a really fun conversation. Welcome to this episode of CTU Speaks. CTU Cares. I'm your co-host, Jim Staros, and I'm joined with Andrea Parker. We're talking about today about mentoring new teachers and the CTU Cares program. Yes, and I'll specifically mentoring new teachers of color. This was an initiative through the CARES Act where we at CTU have um, taken charge of pairing experienced teachers of color with new teachers of color because our demographics have about 84% of our CPS population students are students of color, but the teacher demographics does not mirror that. And so we want to be able to retain our teachers of color because research shows that uh, students can relate more and grow more from teachers that they feel they can relate to. This is an attempt to be a consistent training program to make sure that we have teachers that we need to be able to stay in the buildings that'll be best for our communities and best for our students to be able to retain those in the buildings because that's been the big problem is retaining these teachers over the period of years. A lot of teachers leave because they're burnt out and our students suffer. They do. So let's get to our guest and hear what she has to say. So we have in the virtual building, Tara Stamps, who is the Administrative Director of New Teacher Development. Welcome, Tara, to CTU Speaks. Thank you for having me at CTU Speaks. I'm very proud of this podcast, guys, so don't stop. So Tara, why do we need this program? When the Illinois State Board of Education got the CARES Act money, they said, okay, we're going to put this money in mentoring. now. When Chicago Teachers Union got into the mix, we crafted a different mission within that same space. We wanted to particularly focus on teachers of color. And we know due to school closings and reach and all other kind of gotcha mechanisms that have been implemented in schools, Black teachers seem to be the ones that's getting caught most often in those grips where they are leaving the classroom. That's one part of it. The other part of it is that we are not, CPS is not hiring early career teachers of color at the same rate. And so there's been this widening gap between teachers of color represented in classrooms across this city and really across this country. So once you get um, teachers of color in the building, how are you keeping them? What is in place to support them either with pedagogy and or their own social emotional learning, that teachers need social emotional learning too, that teachers need to practice radical self-care as well. One of the things that I really love about this program is that you get both of those. New teachers, early career teachers get so many mixed messages. And so they're very vulnerable and they don't oftentimes know who to turn to. Having that built-in support, I think, was really important for this program. We know mentoring helps. Mentoring is no different than you having a, an internship or when doctors go and do their residency. It's the same. You're getting the support you need while you're practicing your craft. And so you need veteran people to help navigate you through those spaces 
so that you can be successful at the end of that. And then if done correctly, you're paying it forward to the next. One of the positives that came out of it, and many of the new teachers were very satisfied uh, with the coaching. One story, a woman was in special ed and she said she had, she could, she kept going to the office and the case manager trying to make a case for this kid because the um, IEP was wrong and she knew it was wrong, but she said, I kept going back. And then I went to my coaching. She said, she told me like a sentence, tell them this and this. She said, it was like magic. Everything changed. All of these people who have been telling me no, all of a sudden was like, oh, okay, this is what we need to do. And that's the benefit of someone who knows where the bones are buried, right? They know where the minefields are and they know the language and they're experts in their craft. I'm just so glad that we at CTU have this power to be able to coach and mentor, not just teachers with the instructional piece, but with their social emotional uh, piece, because we all need that. So thank you, Tara, for being with us today, who is, again, the administrative director. You are so welcome. Thank you both. Thank you all so much for listening. Until we meet again, we are CTU Speaks, where we only speak what matters. Take care. Bye. Good morning, everybody. Annie here for Solidarity Breakfast. We've been covering what's been going on down at the Collingwood Community Farm for the uh, Collingwood Community Gardeners. They are, of course, part of a a plot, a community garden that's got over 70 plots with, and it's been running for 42 years. It's a historic and uh, vibrant community of gardeners, and uh, they were given an order of desist uh, to desist, and the gates were padlocked. They weren't allowed to go in, and there is now a major stoush, as the, it appears that the Collingwood Community Farm has got other ideas about what should be done with this amazing community asset. I went down to the rally that they held last Saturday and this is my report. I'm from 3CR. Do you want to tell me why it's important? How long have you been plotting for? Eight years. Oh, so it's very important to you. Well, they're taking it off us. I've got stuff there that I can't get anywhere else like horseradish and my ground cherries that are just ready to go and I can't get in to get them. Were you shocked? Been really important. Yes, yes, because it wasn't locked down any other COVID time and it's an excuse to redo the gardens into a market garden to make it productive, but it's been very productive for 70 plots, for 70 households over 42 years, been very productive for them. But also community development within the area. The community is just amazing. The people know each other, they're local. I had it because we live in the city, which is in Abbotsford, and my mum was a country person and she just loved coming to the farm. She's died now, but that's why I applied for the plot. We waited five years to get our plot and then we got it and we've had it for eight years after that. And it was just great to have her come down here because everything grew for her so yeah connection yep and uh, she was from Europe so she knew how to grow stuff she used to laugh at me and say oh, oh, oh you <laughs> grow stuff but I did and I've learnt lots along the way <laughs> yeah. I'm from 3CR so I was wondering why it's important for you to be here Do we have a plot a garden plot here and we grow many vegetables 
seasonal and otherwise. Um, we were shocked when we turned up one day to find that the gate was locked, padlocked. And without warning, a, a very aggressive action for a spurious purpose. The farm management has obtained a, a, a report from a not a very reputable organisation. And on the basis of that report, they've closed the plots down. We can't get access to the, the vegetables that we've planted. Did you think you had more control? Were you surprised you had no control over it? No control over? Over the garden. And w were you surprised that someone could do that? Yeah, absolutely. We are tenant plotters and they act like a landlord and they've just barred us from entering the properties that we've paid rent for. We, that sounds illegal to me. Can you shut a tenant out unilaterally by putting a padlock on the door? That's outrageous. 3CR Community Radio, giving voice to the community since 1976. To another Trailblazer podcast. Today with me, I have Kayla Vandermolen. She is yes. with the International Brotherhood of Boiler Makers, and she's from Calgary, Alberta. So, welcome, Kayla. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you, Jill, so much for having me on uh, Trailblazers today. It's an absolute privilege to get to speak with you and to speak on this platform. I can't wait to share your story. Let's dig right in. How did you get started in the trades? Honestly, it didn't start with the trade. I did not come from a blue collar family. I don't have a blue collar background and it, I didn't come from a blue collar community. So when I graduated high school, I was living in Ottawa, Ontario, and I knew that I loved working with my hands. I loved reading patterns and blueprints and constructing things from scrap from the beginning to the end. And so I went to school for fashion design and I loved making garments but I noticed very quickly that the environment did not suit my personality as different environments have different cliques or different personalities in it. I, I knew that I wanted to take a different path but I wasn't really sure exactly what direction to take so I went to an open house night at a local college and lo and behold thankfully they had a bunch of trade booths all set up so I was looking at carpentry, I was looking at electrical, and all of a sudden, some metal art caught my eye. And there was a welding booth with the most elaborate, beautiful blacksmith work there. So I went right on over because art's always been my cup of tea. And I started observing what was on the table. And the instructor noticed my interest and started chatting with me. 
And he said, hey, I think you might be interested in trying out welding here in your prerequisites. So I signed up for night class. And my first time striking a stick or striking an arc, I fell in love with it. I said, okay, this is for me. But I'm really glad that I still took that night course because it gave me a good understanding of is this the industry I want to get into? Is it worth pursuing? And sure enough, it was. But you've come a long way, not just Ottawa to Alberta, but you've done a lot of things and shipyards, how exciting that is. It was really cool to be a part of that. Canada is getting back into the shipbuilding business. So I got to work on science vessels, ships from New Zealand. We were either fabricating parts to replace them, or we were completely removing some old wells from the shell of the ship and reconstructing that to code to make sure that essentially the ship didn't sink once it went into the ocean. And that's also when you have to consider more about the metallurgy side of things, because now that steel is in the ocean or uh, the Atlantic or the Pacific, that's a lot of salt water. So then you have to think about the corrosion and just how cold the water can get. So everything together, it's really cool. Yeah, that is really cool. So what obstacles have you overcome along the way? You know what, there's a couple of uh, answers to that one too, as I'm sure most people that are in this industry have come across several obstacles. One of my obstacles was when I completed my, my first time going to school for welding over in Ottawa, trying to find work. I remember I walked into a couple of potential employment opportunities and before I could even say hello, I would get laughed at. And I was dressed appropriately for the job. I had my Carhartts, I had my steel toes. I had a, a shirt covering my arms. I was ready to work, but they just, they didn't want anything to do with me. There was a couple of other places. I've heard this about four times that the employer told me, there's not a woman's washroom on site or in the building. So yeah, that's not a problem, but they were pretty persistent with that. I was picking up what they were putting down. So after that, I realized I needed to change my approach. So then the next employer that I went up to apply for, their excuse was, hey, we're looking for someone who has three plus years of experience. I said, you know what? That's excellent. That's not a problem. Let me volunteer for you. Give me one day that's it's free labor for you. And at the end of the day, you can let me know if, if you still want to find someone who has three years of experience or if you're happy with the work that I'm producing. By lunchtime, the boss came around and said, when can you start? So that was my first foot in the door. I, the, the pay was $11 an hour. It wasn't much, but it was an opportunity. So that's I, I like to be an optimist in that way. And that's what I kept telling myself. This is an opportunity. I'm still new. I have to learn the trade. And also I had to learn the culture as well, because learning how to strike an arc is one thing, but understanding the workplace culture is a whole different ball game in itself. You're amazing. You're a great mentor yourself. And thanks for putting yourself out there to be a good mentor and an instructor. I think it's it's really a, a big deal to be a female instructor. And I love everything that you're doing. And I, I'm going to be watching. I'm going to be creeping you. I'm going to be watching you. You have to stay in touch with me and let me know what you're doing and where you're going and what you're up to and stuff like that. Wonderful. Um, Thank you very much, Jill. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, we'll talk about that. So I'll stop recording now. Thank you so much for joining me. That was great. Yeah. Thanks for sharing your story. 
Welcome back to Third and Fairfax. This is Monique Sorgan. I am here today with Eliza Schlesinger, and she is a uh, very well-known stand-up comedian and has just written a feature which is on Netflix called Good on Paper. Um, so we're going to talk a little bit about, well, tell me how you ended up going into this business. Where did you come from and how did you get here? Oh, I'm just, I dabble in stand-up comedy and, um, I, this, this is one of several screenplays that I've written, but this is my first one that I've gotten made. And this, um, basically is a, a story that I wrote. We call it a true, a mostly true story based on a lie. It's about a true experience about uh, a total sort of talented Mr. Ripley sociopath that I, befriended and then ended up dating years ago. And it was so weirdly traumatic. I do what all comedians do. I uh, went through this cathartic process of turning something traumatic into taking ownership of it and making art out of it and uh, got a producer on board. And, and I just, I never stopped. I never questioned that I couldn't do it because no one told me I couldn't. And uh, I chipped away at this screenplay. And a couple of years later, here we are, Netflix acquired it and well, it comes out June 23rd. How far in did you do Last Comic Standing? How many years had you been doing it by then? I've been doing it three years and I had a day job and I would go out at night and I would, you know, I think people think you get a Netflix special or you're a girl. So you got it because you're cute, you know, but nobody, I've done a couple documentaries to this effect. Nobody ever sees, you know, the 10,000 hours, the 20,000 hours, the multiple shows in a night while having a day job, driving, being exhausted. And I do it because I love it. I love stand up. And then, so you, you know, you start auditioning for things because your agents want you to be a star, be more. And the writing was always something that I could do. Uh, it wasn't something that I had practiced the way that other writers had. I've never been on staffed on a show because my passion was always stand up, but I've been able to do it. And, you know, you write several scripts and each one gets better and you learn your lessons and all it takes is one producer to say yes. And sometimes even them saying yes, doesn't get it made, but some, we got this one through. <laughs> uh huh. <gasps> there are so many women now doing stand up that, um, the gender issue is becoming less and less because so many of us had to sort of take it on the chin for so long. And we didn't do it as a way of sacrificing. We just, that's how it was. And so I hope that no girl has to deal with the absolute BS that most of us did coming up. We're probably going to wrap up in a second, but tell me what uh, are you working on now? What's coming next? So, you know, Everyone's I think- favorite question in Hollywood. Yeah, because you sound like a liar. Everybody, you know, like I've got th like eight projects in the can. Um, I can tell you, I am going to be in the new season of Bosch. Wow. <laughs> so random, but I love the show so much. Um, I have a book with Abrams. It's my second book. It's called All Things Aside, hopefully coming out. It is coming out in 2022. Um, I'm trying to think of, I always... I don't know if Greg's on this call. I always bomb at this question. Uh, I, the most important thing right now is my tour. It's like a 50 date, never ending stand up tour. Thank you so much for being with us today on Third and Fairfax. It was a pleasure Thanks. talking to you. Really nice meeting you. Thank you, Monique. Many thanks for joining the conversation here on Third and Fairfax. If you have comments or questions, you can always send us an email podcast at wga.org. And for the entire WGA podcast team, Thank you for listening.
to Tales of the Resistance, Volume 2, Persistence, a summer of original radio podcast political comedies by the confusingly named, always radical, and never ever silent San Francisco Mime Troupe. Every week, we will be presenting one episode written, directed, and performed by Mime Troop veterans and dealing with the revolutionary issues of the day. This week's story, Mysterious Mysteries, the tale of the Black Fox. Hello. Hello. And welcome. Yes, welcome to another chapter of Mysterious Mysteries. It is I, your host and your comrade, inviting you to join me as we explore the twists and turns of the human and inhuman mind. But these are not stories of calm reflection, no. These are tales designed to stab you in the brain with truth! Forgive me. I hope I didn't alarm you. It's just that sometimes when I think about our little mysteries, I get overwhelmed with the urgent need for revolutionary justice! I mean, excited with the idea of telling stories. Stories, soothing, gentle, inspiring, agitating, howling with a fist in the air and a heroic shout of... Power to the people. Oh, yes, power to the people. You understand how I feel? After all, what's so mysterious about... Justice. We'll find out in this week's story as... Mysterious Mysteries! Presents the tale of the Black Fox. And action! My fellow Americans, citizens, real citizens, I want to ask you, Why are things falling apart in our country? Our families, our cities, even our elections? Do you know? Because I sure do, and I think you do too. Inside, where the liberal media can't penetrate, deep in your patriotic heart, whose beating the leftists wanna stop, deep in your soul, which the atheists say doesn't even exist. You know what's wrong with America. It's socialism. Cut! What? We blew a light. Hey, you! Uh, You want me to get another bulb? No, I want a ham sandwich on rye. Of course I want another bulb! Oh, yes, sir. Uh, Back in a minute. The San Francisco Mime Troupe is a worker-run, multi-ethnic, multi-generational collective of activist artists committed to overthrowing capitalism one musical comedy at a time. And even though the pandemic is fading, the Mime Troupe still wants to keep our audiences as safe as possible. So we decided nothing says revolutionary fervor and safety like radio plays. Thank you for listening. And remember, in one week, it'll be time once again for Tales of the Resistance.
Today, I'm speaking with Maximilian Alvarez. He's the editor-in-chief at Real News Network, and he hosts the podcast Working People, which focuses on working-class lives in 21st century America. In every episode, you'll hear interviews with workers from around the country, from all walks of life. And they talk about their life stories, their jobs, politics, and families, their joys and hopes and frustrations. Max, it's a great pleasure to be talking to you this evening. And could you tell me a little bit about yourself, where you grew up, and what led you to organize labor? Shout out to everyone at the Labor Radio Podcast Network, which anyone watching should check out um, and check out all the shows. My name is Maximilian Alvarez. I am the editor-in-chief at The Real News Network, like you said. And I have been making Working People, the show, for I think three going on four years now. And, you know, I'm, I'm originally from Southern California. I've mentioned this on the show a lot of times that I grew up very Catholic and very conservative. And I'm, I'm the son of, you know, a Mexican immigrant who himself grew up dirt poor, became a citizen in the 1980s and, you know, married my mom. And on my mom's side, you know, there were a lot of stories of poverty and struggle as well. And so that was very much kind of baked into our family history and all the stories that we would hear from family members growing up. And so there was, you know, I think a very strong class consciousness, at least in terms of like how our family understood our history and the struggle of kind of providing the life that, that myself and my siblings were able to live. And, you know, that really kind of started to become a, a major point of fascination for me as our family went through, I think, one of its most trying times which was a, t a trying time for millions and millions of people during the Great Recession, you know, in 2007, 2008, and in the years uh, afterwards, right? You know, our family had, had kind of fought and clawed its way to the middle class, and in the blink of an eye, that all went away. And, you know, it was, it was during that period when our family had essentially lost everything. And I noticed that we, we were, in fact, kind of losing ourselves and losing each other in that very process, right? We were, we were receding into ourselves. We weren't giving ourselves the kind of time and space and care to talk about what we were going through, the trauma that we were all experiencing. Instead, we were doing what, you know, capitalism encourages us to do, which is to internalize these deeply systemic failures as, as ultimately very personal failures, that, that it was all our fault and that we had no one to blame but ourselves. And we punished ourselves for that. And I could see it in my father. I could see it in my mom. I felt it in myself. And so what I wanted to do was use the medium of podcasting to provide, you know, a chance for people like my, my dad, who was the very first guest I ever had on the show, to open up and talk about what they were going through. Because I noticed that when my dad was driving Uber, he was talking to like the people that he was driving. And it was then that he actually realized when he was talking to his passengers that you know he, he would just talk to them about their lives and he realized that he was driving people his age to their second or third job. He was driving people who came from the same place that he did, who had also lost everything it was then that he realized he wasn't alone and that it wasn't all his fault and that this was a deeply systemic crisis that you know working people had suffered the results of and that really kind of reminded me of the power of workers talking to one another sharing their stories and and kind of showing their scars to one another and listening to one another 
you know, there's real power in that. There's real power to build worker solidarity in sharing those stories and in, in genuinely listening to one another, giving each other that kind of gift. And that's really what working people is all about, is, is a space for people to feel heard, to feel seen, and to, you know, have their stories and their lives connect with those of anyone who's listening. Looking into the future of organized labor, where do you see opportunity and hope? We are fighting a very uphill battle as we always have been. But what encourages me, not only through the many people that I've talked to on my show, right? You mentioned the, the shipbuilder in Maine, Jamie Belfler, right? She's a, she's a, you know, our age. She's like in her young 30s and was helping lead this strike, one of the longest private sector strikes in, in recent American history. And they won what they wanted. They got what they needed during a pandemic, right? And, and they got it with help from people like us in the media who are helping kind of break the media silence around this strike, right? There are people like her who are fighting for what's right, fighting for her coworkers. There are people like Vanessa Bain, who is herself a gig worker and organizer with the Gig Workers Collective out in California, who like Vanessa is like a real life hero, right? She is working with these other gig workers. I mean, there are so many amazing folks over there that I, I, I would leave too many out if I tried to name them. But these are people who I'm taking inspiration from. These are people who are getting knocked down time after time and time again by these fucking companies and they keep getting back up and and building more numbers, right? They keep kind of finding more people and strengthening their message. And if that doesn't give you hope that, you know, like the labor movement will never be, you know, kind of permanently put down, then I don't know what does. Maximilian Alvarez. Thank you for all that you're doing, raising working class voices and strengthening union solidarity. Thanks, brother. Appreciate it. And shout out to the Labor Radio Podcast Network. I'm Rick Smith. And this is Labor History in Two. On this day in labor history, the year was 1918. That was the day machinist John Connolly was fired from General Electric's Sprawling River Works in West Lynn, Massachusetts. Firings of several more labor activists prompted 14,000 workers, 40% of them women, to walk off the job and flood the ranks of the IAM and the IBEW. The newly established War Labor Board emboldened GE workers. They looked to the board for help in beating back yellow dog contracts and to organize bona fide unions. A metal trades council had finally been established at the GE plant in Schenectady, New York. Workers hoped to do the same at Lynn. After Connolly's discharge, GE managers fired another 14 activists three days later. As Joseph McCartan describes in his book, Labor's Great War, thousands of outraged workers met the evening of the firings and determined there was nothing left to do but strike. The walkout began the following Monday. David Montgomery describes the scene in the fall of the House of Labor, writing, quote, Early in the afternoon, union sound trucks outside the building blared fighting songs and called to down tools. Within an hour, the GE Riverworks were empty. 
the strike lasted three weeks. In that time, strikers defeated attempts at arbitration, demanding the board rule on their behalf as it had done for GE workers in Schenectady. In October, the board adjusted wages, ordered reinstatement of all but two of the fired workers, and established minimum pay for women. It also ordered the election of shop committees. Lynn Riverworks was now 95% organized. Victory was short-lived, however. In the post-war period, unions at GE and elsewhere were summarily defeated in vigorous open shop drives across the country. Labor History in Two brought to you by the Illinois Labor History Society and the Rick Smith Show. That's it for this edition of the Labor Radio Podcast. Weekly, our roundup of highlights from just a few of the more than 100 Labor Radio shows and podcasts that make up the Labor Radio Podcast Network. We've got links to all the network shows. You'll find them at laborradionetwork.org, including complete versions of the shows you've heard today. And you can also find them by using the hashtag LaborRadioPod on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Labor Radio Podcast Weekly was edited by Patrick Dixon, Melanie Smith, and me. I produced the show. And our social media guru, as always, is Harold Phillips, who is very happy that Melanie is now on the team. You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at LaborRadioNet. And find out more on our website at LaborRadioNetwork.org. We really hope that you enjoy the show and that it inspires you to explore the shows in the network. More than 100 across the country and indeed around the world. Ordinary folks working hard to air the voices of workers. If you do, please help spread the word about this amazing and growing world of labor, radio, and podcast shows. You can like our show and share it on social media. We call it Sonic Solidarity. Thanks very much. For Labor Radio Podcast Weekly, this has been Chris Garlock urging you stay active and, of course, stay tuned to your local Labor Radio Podcast show. See you next week.